Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mind, mood and mental health. In this episode, I interview therapist and food relationship strategist, Dr. Ebony Butler, on how to heal your relationship with food and your body, how diet culture is messing up our mental health and very oppressive to black communities, how she helps clients who are struggling with identity issues and more. Dr. Ebony also shares some great tips on how to heal from PTSD and complex trauma. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends, family, and on social media. And now, on to today's interview. Dr. Ebony, I'm so thrilled to see you again. So we had such a great live. Yeah, thank you for coming to do the podcast. Yes, and thank you so much for inviting me. I think that we had a conversation online that was actually amazing. And I'm just happy to be able to follow up because it was so rich. It was so much information. That I-, I know it was. It was a fantastic um, live. So guys, you can go listen to the live. It's on my IGTV. And now we've got the podcast where so we can dive even deeper. It's wonderful. So how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I've just kind of been doing appointments all day. And so my mind is in therapy mode. And so I'm, I'm okay. And now you can, you? good. I've been doing interviews all day. So I'm in interview mode. <laughs> Hattie, I've had such interesting talks today. So I'm really glad to talk to you as well. It's been a fantastic day and it was perfectly topped off with your interviews. So thank you so much. So, okay. Just tell your listeners, those that haven't heard you before, just tell them a little bit about who you are, what you do, what's not in your bio, what motivates you to do what you do. Yes. So what motivates me, I think that's a good place to start. I'm really motivated about educating people, about educating myself. And I always tell people this story about my sister. When we were little, she came home and she used to teach me everything that she knows. Aww. And so she would teach me. And so I was ahead in school when that's so I finally cute. got to the age that she was. Yeah. And so what motivates me is being able to provide that to other people Aww. in the same piece that she provided it to me. And so I do that by therapy. I do that in my food relationship coaching. And so I think that the way that I think about things, people tend to find it helpful. And I would like to just provide that to people and disseminate that as much as I can, especially to communities of color, especially to black women, as those are my passion populations. And so just being able to help them thrive in trauma recovery, being able to recognize kind of like their worth and empower them. And sometimes that means calling attention to things that we might not even know is oppressing us. 
That is so good. Calling attention to those things that might be oppressing us and we don't even know that. Those those non-conscious things that are down there and, and influencing our behavior and stuff. So yeah, we got if you don't know about them, we can't change them. So that's so important. That's really great. And I love the fact that your sister taught you everything in advance of learning it at school. So you could always be the superstar there. That's Yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> she's so nice. kind of like in the background. And so she's here this weekend helping me ship out the therapy card. Yes. Congratulations. I saw on your page that you've just got them arrived, that they've just arrived. They are arriving and they are a lot. They're massive. And so my family came in town this weekend to help me ship them. So she's always just been in the background Uh and I want her to be like a presence like me and just kind of be in front of the the camera and talking, but she's not. And so she just basically, as we've always done, she just taught me what she knows Uh and I kind of talk a lot. And so I just kind (laughs) of... It's just perfect. It's perfect, perfect relationship. Isn't that wonderful? I love that. That's amazing. It's good to have those kind of people in your life. I have that as well. My husband's in the business and he's the same. And I've got my two of my four children. My two daughters are, in fact, my one daughter's the producer. I call her the boss. But it's so great having that relationship where you have people that you love and, and, and you know you can rely on and they just make things work, you know? So it's just amazing. They make it work so we can talk. <laughs> great. So you are a psychologist. And then this is one of my favorite ways of saying it, food relationship strategist. That's just such a great way. Instead of saying a food therapist or, you know, like all those scary words like anorexia and everything, you talk about being a food relationship strategist. And I love that. Can you tell us what that is? Yes. So I started this business. Okay. So back in 2015, it plays within my sister. My sister and myself created a business called My Sister's Keeper. And My Sister's Keeper, it was a business where we were going to help women learn how to become healthier, learn how to lose weight, learn how to eat and that kind of thing. And then as we began to shift and understand really about diet culture and really the oppressiveness Mm -hmm. of it, I really realized a lot of the harm that the health and wellness industry typically kind of disseminates. And I just did not want to be a part of that. And I didn't want to call myself a health and wellness coach because I feel like everybody was calling themselves that. And I know that pair with my background as a psychologist I bring something different to the space. And I was like, I don't really want to also coach people in that I feel like I'm the expert in telling them what they need to do. I feel Mm. like people have agency to be able to make these decisions on their own. And maybe we can work alongside each other to kind of come up with things that they could do to help kind of tap into that. And I also realized that clients are the expert. They're the expert in their own lives and everything will not work for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. There's no cookie cutter formula. Yeah. No cookie cutter. So I found myself in session, literally strategizing. Some people call it brainstorming. Some people call it kind of working through, but we were actually strategizing ways that we can help this person engage in health seeking behaviors outside of weight loss and those types of things. And so it's exactly what it is. It's strategizing and we're strategizing together about your relationship with food. So I felt like that was a perfect match and I didn't have to tie myself to the health and wellness industry. I felt like it was a blend of both what I do as a psychologist and a food relationship person. So that's how the name was born. Brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And it's very freeing. It's very hopeful. It's not threatening. It just means that, hey, we can get a plan going here. We can work this out. There's a, and, and the agent, I love the agency thing. You know, with the research that I do, I just finished some clinical trials. I think I told you last time, one of the big things was empowerment. The, it was literally creating a pathway to empowerment. And part of that empowerment is the ability to get awareness. And you mentioned earlier on, you can't change what you're not aware of. But then once you're aware, you need to then have take realize that you've got control. So 
So awareness leads to control, which then leads to the ability to change things. And that's how we become empowered. You know, so this is what, as a strategist, that word makes me think of, I can be aware and I can control. And then I feel better about it, you know, and that's, it's, it's a great, it's a, a forward moving. There's no judgment. Yeah. There's a little judgment associated with it. And, and as you think about coach, you're like, oh, I need to be perfect. So this person sees me as well. This person sees me as good enough. And so it creates that kind of that power differential that we see sometimes that mm-hmm. makes people feel ashamed and guilty. And I don't want anybody to feel like that. Mm-hmm. I want you to come to the table like, okay, let's come up with this. And then we have flexibility to change it if it doesn't work. That's good. That's we what strategy to. is about. Exactly. So being strategic is the ability to have a possibilities mindset and to keep changing and, and have expectation mindset too. So that's really amazing. Okay. So you help women learn how to build healthier relationships with food. So you basically do it through strategizing. So can you just talk a little bit more about that? Because I think you've kind of touched on the basic concepts. So maybe just give us a little bit more about sort of just a couple of techniques or tips or how you'd go about the process. Absolutely. Part of the first part of what we do is education around what a food relationship is, because we don't really talk about our food in terms of us having a relationship with it. We'll have a relationship with our hair. I know for a lot of black women, we have a real intimate relationship with our hair. We have relationship with our partners. We have relationships with friends. We even have relationships with fashion, but we don't really talk about relationships with food. And so a part of that is the education around it and setting the expectations and, and defining what that actually looks like. And so if we define a relationship, a relationship is defined as a connection, the interaction between two or more things. So basically that goes for for anything. And so how we're interacting with each other because food interacts with our bodies, Mm -hmm. it impacts our bodies. We interact with food and we, what we do can impact our food source. And so basically that relationship and how it is effective. And another part of the conversation when we're educating is around why are we focusing on the food relationship and not just weight loss? Because typically when people come to me, they're coming to me because they've associated me with weight loss because that's our conditioning. And so so you talk about about, food and people think weight loss. Yeah. Yeah. People think Mm -hmm. weight loss. That's our conditioning. I mean, the industry has done a brilliant job of marketing and -hmm. and conditioning us in, in that regard. And so when people come, we're like, okay, so we're not focusing on weight loss because weight loss doesn't really help with much around your relationship with food. It's like if you were in a relationship with somebody and the immediacy, the thing that you do when you get that number or you go to them and say, okay, now how are our children going to, how are we going to parent and or how is our wedding going to look? And it's like, well, what? We, we literally just met. And so that's the thing that we, we jump right into it. That's how uh. weight loss is with food, right? It's an immediacy. It's an urgency. Mm. It's, it's a result driven thing instead of a connection driven aspect. That is very important. Yeah, I love that. It's a connection-driven thing versus a results-driven thing. Yes, because then from where I sit as a psychologist, it's important for me to understand why we do the things that we do. From my own journey in weight loss, I recognize that it's a lot of mental. It's a large part Mm. that's mental in weight loss and weight management and all of that stuff. And so we're going to just put you on another diet. We're just really reinforcing this idea that you need to lose weight for some odd reason or another. And we're really not understanding the behaviors around how you're engaging with food. We're not understanding the connection. So basically what we're doing is observing. We do a lot of observing, really looking at your patterns. So when people come, they're like, okay, just tell me what to do. Because at this point I'm fed up, I'm desperate. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, the thing that you're going to do is nothing. You're actually going to observe because we need to take a moment, Mm -hmm. sit down, sit back and become mindful around the things that you're doing. Because a lot of what we do around food is on autopilot and habit. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be able to look at those things. And so that's kind of the 
pre-work that we do, yeah. kind of the front-facing work. Love it. You know, that's so scientific because I've just written books about food, but there's the science behind food that I'm sure you're aware of, but I don't know if you, if you list, if the listeners and your listeners are aware of this, but up to 85 to 90% of our digestion of food, the assimilation of nutrients is controlled by your mind. So your mind literally drives the ability from when you put the food into your mouth to when you actually get it into your cells and get that nutrition. So if you are all toxic and worked up and worried about your body image, worried about that fight you had with your husband, or that issue at work with your whatever colleague and and or worried about what's going on around you and also worrying about the, all the the, the con, what we're living in the mo at the at the current in this current climate with all the racism going on and it affects the emotions which then affects our digest our digestion and we can lose up to 85 percent of nutrition so that's just interesting that it's so important i said that just to undergird what you said about the fact that you have to first observe and see what are you doing what's the thinking behind the meal as opposed to just you know diving in and and then nine out of 10 diets, I'm sure you're aware of this, nine out of 10 diets fail anyway. It's when you when you bring your mind into the game and it's not trying to diet, then you're going to start getting, you know, you have a different, it's a connection, as you say. It's not a, a set of rules that people are going to definitely break. Yes. And when we are working with people, a lot of people are coming in with this idea that they are bad because they can't stick to it. And so I love the stats that you're bringing up about nine out of 10 diets fail. And most people think yeah. that that's because they are causing them to fail and they don't really understand all of the mm-hmm. emotions behind it. They don't understand the mind the mechanism, the mind. They don't understand all of that, but they begin to turn that inward and blame themselves. And so it's undoing a lot of that stuff and unlearning and removing ourselves from that guilt and shame and responsibility of the diet failing when so many other factors are are involved in the process. Yeah, it starts with the mind. I always say eating is a metacognitive event. And I always say to people that there's only one rule for eating, and that's eat real food mindfully. You know, get your mind into the game, eat real food, and then the other things. And that's a relationship. It's like you're saying, it's a connection with food. So I, I love your approach. Okay, you wrote such, you put up such a great post today. I'm just going to read the post and then let's unpack it a little bit and then we'll go into some other things. You said, repeat after me, my worth is not determined by my body size. My value is not determined by how snatched my waist is. I like that word. My character is not tied to how many calories I consume. I'm good enough just as I am without any mention of my weight or body. And then you go on to explain that. So, just talk about that post and, and your ex- you had some really cute little concepts that I'm going to pull out of you. You'll probably carry, cover all of them. Yeah. So that post was actually for me. <laughs> now the honesty yeah. comes out. Yeah, now that- <laughs> so people don't really. So the, I like to show up authentic. Hey, do you take your own advice? Do you take your own advice? I have to ask you. Uh, sometimes okay, I do take my own advice. And I sometimes I'm, a, I'm the worst client ever because yeah. I know. Like I know too much. Right. And, and yeah. at least that's what I tell myself. Yeah. But that post was actually for me because I've struggled with weight my entire life, I would mm-hmm. say, and my body image. And so I used to have a problem and some feedback that I got in supervision before is that I like to appear competent. I like to appear that I have it all together. Mm-hmm. And what I found in working with clients, especially around body image and weight, is that people need to know that you don't have it all together and that you're not mm-hmm. some being that's just sitting over here judging them or telling them what to do. So what I found is that if I tap into my authentic experience and I speak from that place, that reaches and resonates so much with people. And so when I post those tweets, those are mostly tweets from either my own experiences or moments I've had with clients or realizations I've come to. And so those tweets are coming from that place. And so that one specifically Mm. is super authentic and transparent, actually. So that place, that post was 
a reminder to myself when I'm feeling judgy about my own body and comparing my body against other people who I see or ways that I think my body should meet an ideal is that no, you are good enough by yourself. If nobody ever notices your weight, if your waist is never snatched, if you do have the back rolls that you have, the backpack, you are good enough just like that. And so I meet so many women Mm -hmm. who say, and I actually just had a client two weeks ago say, if I could just get my butt to match the rest of my body, then that would be good. <laughs> I was like, you are good enough, even if your butt does not match, even if there is no uh, sign of it. you by yourself are good enough. And so I want people to understand that a lot of our worth, and this is what diet industry does. Yeah. A lot of our worth has been connected to the food that we eat, the shape that we are, how many calories we consume and burn. And so our values have been placed in skinniness and that has been tied to attractiveness that has been tied to that has been tied to beauty and all of that is wrapped up in this ideal perfect body image that somehow is going to make us good enough at some point if we can just reach it and so i needed to send a reminder not only to myself but to other people that we are good enough and our worth is not determined by how many calories we consume our value is not con- con- like the snatchness of our ways and i made that word up snatchness i made it. I <laughs> that's how it caught my attention it works though but yeah, but I didn't make up snatched, but I made up the <laughs> snatchedness of my way. Yeah. It's not does not mean anything about me as a person. And I think that we're reinforced for smallness and then the validation, uh, the external validation that happens can reinforce this idea that if we look a certain way, then that means that we are valuable in some way. And I just want to remind people and myself mm-hmm. at times that that has nothing to do. One has nothing to do with the other. And if we stop placing our value and worth there, we can really diminish a lot of the shame and guilt that we carry about the ways that our bodies look. Oh, that's so good. And that's tied directly into identity. And, you know, you see with, I see with the research I do that when people's identity is compromised for whatever reason, and in the case that we're talking about now, the ideal body from the diet industry and so on and the movies and everything, we get a very low energy. You can see it on the brain scans. You get very low energy just above my eyebrows and that part of the brain. And that's the part of the brain that is very active as we are making decisions and making choices and having insight and, to, and that kind of stuff. So when that drops down, in energy it's not working like so that means your brain's not working like it should so when we feel bad about ourselves immediately we'll see a drop in brain function in that area and then that then drops your ability to actually judge your value in the in the correct way and so you have this because your mind works through your brain so if your brain's not doing what it should so you've got to kind of use your mind to fix your mind so you've got to make say these kind of statements that you said you've got to actually make these statements to let me get back to you've got to say these kind of things that you say to actually and, and believe them and it's almost like you're teaching yourself and in that you can see an almost immediate shift when people's identity changes you see an immediate shift in this area where there's an increase and then the, so the more you start believing it the more you then are able to get more insightful and start recognizing hey it's not my body shape that's the determinant of my value it's me as a person me as a person I'm valuable and all that kind of stuff that you say so I just thought I'd throw in some brain science that's that information <laughs> like I feel like if people I love science and this is one of the reasons why I love it is because if you just understand that this is so much bigger than just you not looking like another picture, like there are so many things at play. So much is happening in the body. And if we just understood how that impacts us, we will free ourselves up so much of the responsibility that we have. And when we are thinking about ourselves in a way and allowing ourselves to just be 
How empowering is that to understand mm. that when I think better about myself, I can show up better, I can behave better, exactly. I function better. And that is just so empowering. And so you can gain so much control from that versus Absolutely. the other way around where we feel like we're completely powerless. Exactly. And, so, so, and it's so toxic that, you know, it's, and it affects everything. It doesn't just, it isn't just isolated in one area. It tends to permeate all our behaviors and patterns and everything. During this crisis, taking care of our physical health is vital, but our mental health is just as important. If you are struggling with fear of the future, uncertainty, loss, insecurity, anger, or any other emotion that is causing you mental distress, one of the best remedies is talking to someone. And while it may not be possible to see someone in person, there are other great online options. My favorite online resource and one I highly recommend is BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. That's trybetterhelp.com slash Dr. Leaf and join the over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And just for my listeners, get 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. So that really comes directly to the point of dysmorphia, body dysmorphia, which you also work, which is pretty much what you've just described. So maybe if you could just quickly define body dysmorphia and how you help to sort of deal with that. Absolutely. It's the, it's the person's image of themselves that does not line up. It's a complete perception, right? So we're talking about what is perceived versus what is real. Yeah. So it's a person's perceived image of themselves is flawed. And as different than what is actually based in reality. Simple as that. They see Mm -hmm. something different than what is based in reality. Mm -hmm. And the work that I do with clients around body dysmorphia and body image issues is taking into account, like, let's tease apart what is real and what is perceived. And basically, let's look at the evidence that you have about the, the things that you are kind of saying about your body as is related to the flaws that you feel like it has. Where did you learn that those things were flaws? What does that mean about mm-hmm. you if we connect this body image that you think you, you have, well, this image that you have and this, these things that you think are wrong with you, what does that mean about you? What does that mean about you as a person in society? And we just kind of dig, dig, dig. And like, where did you learn that? You know, mm-hmm. and a lot of it goes back to family of origin. And kind of a lot of that goes back to what they were taught from their family of origin. And so we just kind of keep digging mm-hmm. until we're just basically 
challenging people's perceptions, really. You do the same thing with, with anxiety. It's like, yeah, um, you same thing. Fear, course. Yeah. We're challenging the perspective. We're challenging your, like, is this real? Is this based in reality? What evidence do you have? Mm-hmm. And exposure, like, what if it, what it would look like to wear a pair of shorts? What are the thoughts that come to mind when you think about yourself in shorts? Mm-hmm. What are the thoughts that come to mind when you see yourself on the picture? So we're doing a lot of exposure type of things, a lot of challenging those thoughts that come up. That's excellent. Like I've got this little toxic tree over here, which I always use for thoughts because thoughts are real things. They're actually things you build in your brain. And so if you've got this body image, this body dysmorphia image of yourself, that perception is wrong. So you actually have to embrace that and reconceptualize that into the reality. And that takes that takes work, but it takes an awareness first. Because you see from neuroscience that, yeah, it works. And then here's a healthy one. I use this all the time. So there's a healthy one. So that's the healthy thought. And a thought is a tree. And it's, it's, it's a concept. And trees, like trees have got lots of branches. Each of those branches is representing all the different memories in the thought you know so there's the thing of I don't have a good body image but there's all the stuff inside there so when you're doing that work that you're talking about of why do I have this image that's all going to come out over there but it's that's the healthy one you've got to dig this stuff out and get it to that and that's what you're doing that's I mean there's a little bit of science behind the, the what you've just explained it's always nice to have those visuals and the, the link back to the brain science and I'm smiling so hard because you're my you're my type of provider I love to talk in analogies I love to talk in metaphors and I love to talk in and like showing people things because I'm also yeah. a visual learner. So the way that you're thinking about these things and the way that you're explaining them is right up my alley. Oh, good, good. And people love it. People respond because people love science. You know, so as soon as you know that you, you know, you aren't your brain, you control it. You, you aren't a victim of your biology. You can change those things. It's, it's a really empowering thing to be able to do, which is so cool. Okay. So what are some of the main issues that you see coming up in your practice? So, yeah. So I work from a trauma lens. So I do a lot of trauma recovery work. I started this work working in military sexual trauma. So I used to work for with veterans and working around helping them to reclaim their power. Mm. And so when you're working with people who have been traumatized, sexually abused, betrayed and taken advantage of at the hands of someone else, you have a lot of confidence issues. So there's a lot of confidence building. There's a huge lack of trust in self. There's a lot of loss of power. So feeling like you can't control anything. There's a lot of fear Mm -hmm. that we work around. There's a lot of self-blame and guilt. Those may be the two biggest things that we work on. Self-blame and guilt. Self-blame and guilt. Blaming yourself, taking responsibility for what somebody else did to you, not being able to trust yourself to take care of yourself or to take care of other people and to keep them safe. So safety becomes an issue Mm -hmm. and working with women Um, a lot of intimacy issues with intimacy and relationships. So I work a lot around how to interact with yourself, how to show up in relationships with other people. We work on effective communication. So how to ask for what you want to need, because if you know, you know, anything about confidence and trust is that if you don't trust yourself, you don't really have confidence. It's really hard to ask somebody else for something. It's really hard to, to make a case and basically advocate for yourself for what you need. So those are the core issues, sexuality, Mm-hmm. All of those issues. And now, because I work in Texas and the area where I live in Austin is majority white. And yeah. a lot of we are getting a lot of tech things here. And black women in tech is a thing because that treatment is so different. So we began to do a lot of work around racial trauma oh, and trauma work is transferable. There are some mm-hmm. nuances with sexual trauma and racial trauma, but a lot of trauma work is is actually transferable and a lot of similarities there. So working around racial trauma and helping people to understand how to work through that, how to recover, how to regain their power, because any type of trauma wipes your power away from you. At least that's the, 
That's yeah, it the, does. Um, yeah. Purpose of it. Mm-hmm. And so helping you to regain that power, helping you to stand in that and helping you to learn how to advocate for yourself and have a voice. Those, mm-hmm. I will say those are the main things that come up. Main things. Okay. Well, that's, so let's talk a little bit about the, what do you do with the racial trauma? Kind of just a little bit. And then also the self-blame. That's very, very, very significant. I'm so glad you've mentioned that. And that's something that I, we haven't spoken about on a podcast for a while with people, but that self-blame thing, that is incredibly linked to identity and value. And it's so common, isn't it? I mean, that is really something that is very, very common. So could we talk just a little bit about both of those and how you would handle them? And some bias techniques or something. Yeah. 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 They're basically intertwined. And so when you hear even racial trauma, right, I think that the tendency, okay, here's your brain person. So here's how I see our brain working. So this is part of the education that I do this. I love educating and love providing context. Yeah. So what I do is when people come in with trauma and they are presenting with some self-blame and kind of taking the responsibility of what has happened to them, I kind of paint this picture for them that the brain likes a complete picture. The brain doesn't like anything to be incomplete. We like to we like to see the entire picture. Our brain does. And so when there is not an, a complete picture, the brain looks for information in your environment to help fill in those holes. Even if that puzzle piece doesn't fit, the brain plugs it in. Most times in, the, in anxiety, the anxious brain, I should say, plugs it in. Mm-hmm. And the anxiety, well, the only piece that it has many times are your puzzle pieces. The person's puzzle pieces. And so when there's when the anxious brain is scanning the environment for how can I fill in this puzzle to make it make sense? Because the anxious brain needs logic, like even though it's purely emotion, it needs logic. And so it says, OK, so what puzzle pieces do you have available to you? You were there. That happened to you. You must be the reason for it. Puzzle piece filled. And so then mm-hmm. in this picture, you begin to say, oh, so that must that was my fault. And also, if we have other Mm -hmm. similar pieces laying around that we've kind of used in the past or we blamed ourselves for things that have happened in the past, it makes sense. It's like, okay, so if it it was your fault then, then it's your fault now. And so that self-blame piece and understanding that you're you're making this, you want to make sense of this because making sense of it gives you control. Mm -hmm. If we know how it happened, Mm. if we know what happened, we can control it from happening again. Mm-hmm. So in order to control it from happening again, we need the entire picture so we can scan it and make sense of it. And so the puzzle pieces are there. Those are your, your puzzle pieces. And so I caused this event. So therefore I can create it. I can stop it from happening again and create safety around that. So that's the part mm-hmm. that we talk about is like, are you blaming yourself because you don't know how to make sense of it any other way? Or maybe you are blaming yourself because it makes more sense this way. Because we don't know why people do the things that they do. We can't make sense of we can't make sense of why a supervisor pulled our scarves off of our heads at work and let another person, a male, wear a cap. We can't mm. make sense of that. Mm. So maybe I wasn't being professional enough because we know professional is also rooted for black people is rooted in racism. Show up, mm. be quiet, be straight, don't make a don't make waves, mm. you know, kind of be clean, be nice. And then show up in those places. So, so maybe I wasn't doing that. Maybe I knew that by wearing a scarf to work, that was going to ruffle some feathers. And I did it anyway. I should have known better. And mm-hmm. we are not taking that's into the account. That's the self-blame. Yeah. That's the self-blame. And, and so that may be how it sounds to people who may not be aware of how that sounds. And we're not taking into account the other person's responsibility and role in that and why they did what they did. Many times we don't know why we can't make sense of it. And so we want to make sense of it. And we just put the blame back on ourselves because that then says, okay, well, if I show up the next time, I know better. 
So I don't have to worry about that public humiliation again. I don't have to worry about my scarf being taken off. And so we basically just work around. Why are you telling yourself this? Where did this come from? Also, where did you learn to blame yourself for things like this? Mm -hmm. Again, family of origin. Well, I remember when I was little and my mom told me or my dad told me that that's the reason that they were leaving. And I felt like I was the reason that my parents got a divorce because I got an F in school. So if you have this core belief that -hmm. things are your fault, then it's really easy to then as an adult your mind around things being your fault as well when you have similar experiences. So even in racial trauma, we do a lot of historic context, basically providing education around racism and professionalism in the workplace and respectability politics. Like I'm supposed to be professional. I can't wear my hair like this. I need to relax my hair. I'm supposed to be nice. I can't be the angry black woman. So out of putting things in its proper context helps people to feel validated. Because that's huge. Mm -hmm. When people disclose trauma to us, one of the main things in research that shows that the the disclosure process is one of the main things that can predict or one of the main predictors of whether or not that person recovers or kind of spirals, right? Because if you're disclosing something and somebody says, oh, you should have worn that then, or how many drinks did you drink? Or that didn't happen. Don't tell anybody else that. Then you're likely to spiral you're likely to feel ashamed. You're likely to feel guilty. But if you disclose and a person says, nobody had a right to put their hands on you, you absolutely can wear what you want to wear that does not invite in things to happen to you, that you feel more seen, you feel heard, you feel validated. Same goes for racial trauma. So when you're experiencing something, you want to check it out. And the person who you're disclosing it to, you want them to say, no, that doesn't make any sense. You're allowed to experience a range of emotions just like anybody else. And anger is an emotion. And if you feel angry about something, you're allowed to feel angry instead of feeling like you need to be quiet all the time. So, you know, it's basically Mm -hmm. validating them and normalizing their experiences and putting those things in context Mm -hmm. is super helpful. And it makes them feel seen. It helps them to feel heard. And it feels like they you aren't. This is what they tell me. So I'm not losing my mind. I was like, no, you're not. This was actually a real experience for you. And this actually happened to you. And so calling it out and labeling is super healing for so many people. So many. And also that other, just to add to that, you've explained that so well, by the way, it's so well done. But the, if, if you now if next time go in and you don't wear the scarf, you've actually also done something to yourself because now you've put yourself in the back room and now you're compromising and that relates, that leads to all the cognitive dissonance and also undervalues you. You know, so it's like, and then so you need to have a safe space where you can go and talk about this is the experience that happened to me. How can I deal with that? And not everyone is getting to therapy, but now that there's things like podcasts and YouTube, we can we can at least make these kind of things spaces available for people to be able to learn this and get educated and express. And so I'm really glad you brought that up, and it's to help because that's also terrible if you suddenly compromise and you put on this front. Because that's what is required socially and it's the wrong social norm anyway. Yeah, it's and the, it's stressful. It's stressful. Yeah, it's to, terrible. To be, Your body, you know, inauthentic all the time. I know that there are yeah. different contexts and we have to show up in certain ways depending on the context. But to think about the time, the place where we spend the most amount of our time to always have show to compromise. Up inauthentic and compromise yourself, that is highly stressful. And people don't realize that, you know, just being repeatedly triggered really takes a toll on your body. It really takes oh, a toll on your psyche. Yeah. 
And it does. I mean, this is the most recent clinical trials I did. We saw, I mean, there's so many things I could share with you, but just everyone's familiar with cortisol. And we see soon when you end up living under that kind of stress constantly, you you basically increase your cortisol levels. And cortisol is a good thing. Everyone thinks it's like a bad thing because everyone talks about cortisol and stress, but cortisol is a very necessary part of your biochemistry or you die. But if it's in the wrong quantities, it then affects the immune system. It also affects things like homocysteine and the combination affects your, your, your hypothalamic pituitary axis, which is there to actually help you stay focused and alert etc but that gets all off whack and suddenly your body's filled with inflammatory issues and so on so it really does it has a direct effect and we saw in my studies in as short as a few weeks we saw cortisol changes and down so when people manage like the, the techniques you're describing that's basically mind management when people get into managing talking about getting some level of understanding then you can actually get the cortisol levels back down you can get the homocysteine levels back down but if not if you're living under that state of constant high levels of the wrong chemicals in your body, you put homocysteine, for example, directly affects your heart and can set you up for dementias and you know affects your immune system. And, you know, so there's a very real physical effect. If people are feeling that pain in their heart, it's real. It's not like you're making something up, you know, and, and you said something earlier on that was so significant. You spoke about the brain and the puzzles. I like your analogy. I love that. And your, your brain is requiring coherence between the left and the right side. So the exact balance, so the filling in the pieces of the puzzle, your mind's doing that because your brain um, energy starts changing if you don't have a complete picture because it's, it's it's an imbalance and the left side sees detail to big picture big picture and right side big picture to detail and so what we want to do is have coherence in in the in the way that the brain waves flow through the brain so when you have the wrong perception or you're shoving yourself in the back room with that analogy or you are trying you've got this perception and you've put all this incorrect information in that creates pockets of anxiety across the brain and you see the we call a red brain you'll see pockets of anxiety across the brain and sometimes there's a huge flare in different parts but as soon as you manage it you change that you know so there's direct so there's evidence what i'm saying is that we see direct evidence direct evidence of change so this is real so what you're saying is real it's not like oh this is just psychological stuff this is real when you actually use your mind to change your mind to change your brain you change your brain it does change physically structurally your physiology changes so this is such important information people need to really listen and and realize that you know it's hard work but there's so much help out there to help people to be able to do this kind of thing you also work in the lgbtq community and that's a big issue body dysmorphia as well and it's very common in marginalized communities you, we spoke about that on the live a little bit as well. We just touched on that, how it's really, an, it's, it's a big issue everywhere, but it's a big issue in marginalized communities. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'll talk about kind of like eating disorders, body dysmorphia, and that stuff in the LGBTQ plus community. So what happens is a lot of people in that community, I mean, largely, if we just look within our society, we're even fighting for equal rights, right? We're still fighting for equal rights, which means that a large part of society doesn't see this population as equal. Mm. And so when you don't see a population as equal, you're also sending the message that that population isn't good enough. Yes. That population is not right. Something's wrong. Something's morally wrong. And so if you're seeing the entire population that way and the majority of our society is thinking that way, then what do you think that does at the individual level? It creates this mm. idea even more so that I'm not good enough. Yeah. Like I'm morally wrong. My body size, my type is is wrong. And so you begin to internalize a lot of these judgments. You begin to internalize a lot of these biases, a lot of these stereotypes that mm-hmm. come with it. And if you don't see yourself as morally right and, and things are wrong with you, then you begin to pick at things associated with yourself to make yourself more right. 
And so body image begins to take a hit. And so that's where you may find people being start trying to control their, their appetite, start trying to control their bodies for sake of looking good enough. And so mm-hmm. if I feel inherently good enough, good enough, I want to just keep under good enough. That enough thing. So it's like, and, and, and it's gut wrenching. I mean, the pain of not being recognized for who you are, it's destructive to your soul. It takes away all your hope. It's the core of who we are. We, we, we want to know we valued. So you remove that from whole huge sectors of society. I mean, we want to know that we're valued, but when you have a history of being told that you are the hugest problem ever, and I, I, I don't want to use the word sin because I don't want to reinforce that it's a sin because it's not. But being told that you are like basically blasphemy, basically you are Mm. the biggest thing to ever go wrong. Is like like you are just the I don't even know the word I'm looking for, but you I know what you see. Being a murderer and being gay, you can almost be a murderer before you're gay. Yeah, exactly. I mean, most most of the kids that are I mean that's that's true. That that is what you said there is so true and it's so wrong. I mean, most of the kids that are homeless on the street are gay. Christian kids that have been kicked out of their homes because what they have done has completely shattered the family. And so if you're having, if you happen to shoulder that amount of responsibility, you definitely don't see yourself as good enough, confident. And what ways have we been taught in society to correct ourselves? If we're not good enough, eat better, change your body image, external. be pretty enough, external, yeah. be pretty enough be beautiful enough to try and, and hide behind be that. Yeah. You'll be accepted. Right. And then within the community itself, there's bias around body size. There's this image of the, as we talk about males, there's this image of the chiseled male body. Yeah. And that is just not realistic. And no. so you have a lot of these images that people are kind of used to seeing and then internalizing a lot of that bias, a lot of those stereotypes. And it creates a lot of body image issues, body dysmorphia, eating disorders. And then we talk about homelessness and then you have food insecurity. All of these issues within the population are like sort of adding to these body image issues and these eating problems. So it's hugely like deeply rooted in sexuality and acceptance and just being accepted for who you are and being recognized for a whole person, regardless of who you decide to love or who your heart loves and that kind of thing Mm. Um, or attraction and what you present as just like being recognized as a whole individual mm. instead of being sort of making that the entire part of who you are. Yeah. I think does it, it actually rips it's, it's life sucking and drains so much. It's out of heartbreaking. People. So it's heartbreaking. And so much so that you would find people wanting to kill themselves. Yeah. Because of it. Very, you very know? high suicide so rates. High suicide rates. So we have a lot of mental health issues, a lot of anxiety around kind of like safety because people are killing, especially exactly. trans people, gay people. So if you're, you're kind of thinking about my safety, am I going to run up against somebody who's not going to like me because of my choice in, in love or my preference yeah. or what I'm naturally and physically attracted to or exactly. emotionally or spiritually attracted to, then they're going to punish me for that. This episode is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for affordable, sustainable, healthy household products. From home and personal care to premium pantry staples, all in one place. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly and innovative products like sulfate-free shampoo, hand sanitizer and tree-free paper products. 
I love how Public Goods makes it easy to shop for all essentials in one place and how beautiful the items are packaged and look. No more ugly soap bottles or containers in my house. I also really appreciate how Public Goods makes an effort to source items that are good for me, my family and our planet. Knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important. Small changes in the way we shop can make big impact on our mental and physical health and the world at large. We worked out an exclusive deal just for the Cleaning Up the Mental Mess podcast listeners. Receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com forward slash Dr. Leaf or use the code Dr. Leaf at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash Dr. Leaf to receive $15 off your first order. The link and more details will be in the show notes. Yeah, the safety is removed, the value is removed, the hope is removed. And then there's all the scary fear mongering of, you know, things like, go, you're going to go to hell and you've got to choose telling, forcing parents. You know, I've had so many parents that have spoken to me about how they were literally told by church leaders that you choose your child or you cho- you go to force your child or they're going to go to hell and, and these parents are choosing the church over the child. I just I just don't get it. I don't get if God is love and goodness and godness is loveness. Exactly. <laughs> Like, really? I mean, if it's one of my favorite people is Jen Hatmaker, and she says, if something, if your religion is hurting other people, you need to ask yourself some deep questions, you know, and what does love, and I often ask people, what does love look like? You know, and, and love doesn't look like having a chiseled body that you're trying to hide behind just for acceptance, but it's become that because it's one of the quickest things that people can try to control, isn't it? So if you, I, I can't, they won't accept me for being gay or whatever it may be, but they, but if I make my body beautiful, then I'll be accepted. And then there's all the, all those issues. So there's two issues. You're dealing with two massive issues, aren't you? One on top of each other. It's not just complex. And I mean, this is probably a whole nother episode that that you can probably kind of tap into. But I think to a large part, religion is based in perfectionism. And so we're looking to be perfect. And so when you see people choosing church over children, they're choosing perfectionism. Oof. They're choosing rightness. There's they're no choosing love in that. morally right. No, there's no love in that. No love in but that. we have to be careful about some of the messages that, that religion as a whole sends about love and God's love being perfect or you needing to be perfect in order to be deserving. It sounds like Zeus. It doesn't sound like God. It sounds like the, the, the it's like Zeus. You know Zeus is going to zap you if you don't. Yeah, <laughs> Zeus. Right? It's like that. Yeah. It doesn't even make any sense. So yeah. God is not going to love you if you're not perfect enough. Oh, so I think we've got to begin to think critically about that. And yeah. I love that you just that simple phrase If God is love. That is not love. So if that is not love, no. that is not God. That is not God. If someone is wanting to kill themselves because of that, if someone's wanting to completely change everything about what they physically look like and who they are, and they can't do it, number one, that, then there's obviously no love in that. That's wrong. God is love. Loveness is acceptance. And that's why I'd like to talk about Godness and loveness because God is love. So Godness and loveness, you know, so that's, as you say, this is another whole discussion, which we're definitely going to be doing at some point because this is like so important. So you working a lot with the black community that's LGBT plus, and that's even like a double whammy, isn't it? I mean, oh yeah, so many complexities, so many intersectionalities, like it's so unique. Like there's a lot of uniqueness and and part of the issue that I, I choose to work in this area is because access to quality care is not, it's not, it's not vast. No. And so there are so many complexities and it's not enough 
to have somebody who is culturally competent in one area and not culturally competent in another, when you're presenting with multiple identities, the issues are way complex. The way that they present the issues that arise are way complex. So even myself, I have to ask myself, like, are you culturally competent to deal with this? And Mm -hmm. I have to say no sometimes because I still, there's so much for me to learn as people evolve. And as we learn more about identity and gender and all of this stuff, yeah, exactly. I don't even know it all. And so just imagine that people who feel like they identify, let's just take trans people, for example, I don't feel completely competent in that. Yet, if there's a black trans person in Austin who needs help, I don't feel completely competent in that. But I'm only one of very few black yeah. psychologists here. That are working with LGBTQ with plus community. Like that. Uh, and, and so just think about that's just here. That's just here. I'm not saying I'm the only black provider, but we think about the population and yeah, the, the complexities. Yeah. I'm probably one of many, wow. like one, I'm probably one out of many other providers wow. um, who see black people, but then it gets narrow and more narrow when you think yeah. about black women, black marginalized communities, thinking about members of the LGBTQ plus community. Like the more you chisel down, working the more on the providers just aren't there. So this is where we have to create community. It is terrible. That first of all, that's just terrible and it's unacceptable. And secondly, this is why it's so good that we can create an awareness and create communities and, and forums and platforms where we can have a, a more community approach to mental health, where people can feel safe to go and talk in spaces where they can go and talk and be accepted. And, you know, thank goodness for people like you, thank goodness. But as you say, what about the people that are too scared to even show up at your offices because of the stigma they have the family and we have to be able to create an accessible way of helping people to feel that they can safely speak about what they're going through because it's it's terribly heartbreaking i mean some of the emails that we get are and and messages we get are are just it's just it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking part of the work that i do is also encouraging providers to do their own work like it's not mm. enough that get educated, get educated, yeah. get educated. Cause we, we call ourselves culturally competent. If we worked with a particular population before that doesn't make us culturally competent. What makes us culturally mm. competent is that we get in there and understand the nuances that we get in there. And we understand the complexities that we meet people where they are, that we are actually trying to immerse ourselves so and understanding our own biases because as providers, we, we sometimes take this stance that we don't have flaws and that we, kind of all-knowing kind of savior complex <laughs> and we have flaws and there exactly. are things that we don't know and so we have to get in there and do the work and recognize that hey because you can't you can't undo your own upbringing either and you're bringing that in the room like hey i do have some biases about people who are in non-monogamous relationships i do have biases about people who want to practice polygamy like i do have these and i need to address those if I want to serve this particular population and I want to serve people who are in different types of relationships and people who present with different types of gender identities or different identities, I want to be able to understand that. And it's not enough to say, well, I have one client who presents that way. So I'm competent. No, we've Mm got to get in there and do the work and begin to immerse ourselves in things and understand better and do our own work is no different than providers doing their racism work and saying, Hey, I have been impacted by this. I don't have a choice, but when I got to get in there and go study the books, go read the books, go read the books, go immerse yourself. 
get educated, do some brain building, learn about it so that you can actually say the right thing, do the right thing. And even then you're going to do the wrong thing. So have the conversations when you, edu- as you educate, converse, isn't it? Go into that and see what the needs are and, and, and get yourself, it's education, education, and it's, and it's an organic process. We, an ongoing organic process. We never know it all. The minute a therapist or anyone thinks that they know it all, they're a bad therapist or they're, they're kind of, you've hit that complacency level growth is, is necessary, isn't it? In, in every, it's definitely necessary. Yeah. We have to get, we have to get comfortable with being vulnerable enough to say, I don't know. And I need to figure it out and I'm going to make some mistakes and calling that out with your client and saying, Hey, there's some things that I bring to this dynamic that I know is going to impact your ability to get, reach your goals. And I'm willing for you to call that out. I'm willing to sit in that discomfort and not enough of us are willing to be uncomfortable Mm. in the room with the client because we're taught that clients are the ones who have the problems and no therapists, psychologists, providers, doctors, we all have issues and we need to be able to sit in that so that we create a human experience and be able to Mm -hmm. say, I don't, I may not have gotten that right then. I'm working to figure that out so that we can get it right going forward. That's vital. You know, the God complex of, of the medical world and the biomedical model has got to stop because, you know, one physician a day is committing suicide because they can't handle the stress. Now, I mean, I train physicians in how to deal with mental health in themselves and in their clients. And they're not trained, physicians aren't trained with mental health, but that's the first go-to that people will go to. And then it's generally, it's just a label and a medication, but that's not the, that's not the solution. You know, so we've got to take away the God complex. As you said, you trained in, in, the, in the training that we all receive if we're in this, in this dimension of, of, of mental health clinical health, clinical, medical, it is that you, the authority figure, that person doesn't know what you know, you've got to tell them to do. That day is over. You know, we can't do that. It's not the way of Eastern medicine either. Eastern medicine is very much about we've got to have a marriage of Eastern Western medicine and we've got to go back to much more of a spiritual approach if we're going to help people. We've got to get back our humanity again. I think we've come almost we've almost dehumanized. You know, medicine's become a bit dehumanized and doctors will be, the f- I work with plenty of doctors and they'll tell you that. But psychology shouldn't have, but it's become in a lot of cases dehumanized. I mean, I'm lucky. I interview people like you and I, but I've had in my career contact with plenty of people in the mental health world and sometimes I think yeah okay the god complex and I don't think you know it's not that they're trying to be a bad person or dominate but it's just that we've got to get off this ivory tower I know the solution you don't yes you've got education but you you're still not an expert on that person you're still not an expert on their experience all you there is to facilitate you know I'm going on my bandwagon too no that's you're right like this. you're right up my alley I always <laughs> tell people I have a huge problem with providers who can't call attention to the ways that they see themselves as all knowing. That is not okay. You are not all knowing. You don't get a chance to, like, my hugest issue is around trauma and providers yeah. defining what trauma is for people. I had, I had supervisors before tell me that particular clients, that's not trauma. That's tragedy, but that's not trauma. Mm. You don't get a chance to tell somebody what's traumatic in their life. Like that is not up to you. No ways. That significantly disrupts a person's life. You don't get to tell anybody what that is. Exactly. People people get to define trauma in ways that feel good for them and feel validating for them. I think for us as providers to go in and say, well, actually you didn't experience a trauma. That was just a really difficult time for you. That's completely invalidating and minimizing. Yeah, totally. We don't have, we don't get a right to do that. We don't get a right to sit in a position that's high up and say, I, I get to tell you what you are and you don't get it. To, and that is what happens many times. Oh, it does. People, brown people, marginalized groups is that they are faced with these providers who think that they know best for their lives. And that is not okay. 
Wow, you know, it makes me think that we should have, and it's definitely not time in this conversation, but about the whole concept of conversion therapy and things like that, which is another one of, you know, the dangers of that and the impact of that. And just also that it, it kind of, it just, I know it's not directly related to what you just said, but it's, it's, it's another example of someone saying, this is the only way, therefore you have to do this to change. And it just made me think of that so much of psychological therapies have been like that. And the medical world that works very well for the heart issues and the you know, the physical symptoms and so on, diabetes and cardiovascular and immune, it's outstanding for an emergency medicine. That doesn't apply to things of the mind. You can't bring that same model over, but that's the model that's been adopted and it's been really absorbed by psychology and psychiatry and mental health and that kind of thing, which is very sad because it's taken away that, that as we, it creates that God complex, that authority complex, and you've got to do this in 10 sessions of CBT. Why aren't you better yet? There's something wrong with you. You have a broken brain. You have a neuropsychiatric brain disease. I mean, this is not helping anyone. And I love what you said, which is so valid of the fact that if something's a trauma for someone to turn around, that person to turn around and say, oh, that's not a trauma. That's just a whatever. That's such a, it's an insult to a person's story. You know, you can't do that. You've got to be so careful of, of removing that if you don't think it's a tragedy, well, that's not your business anyway. It's for that person, it is. And if you're trying to help, you have none of us have the right to invalidate anyone else. And I think the time has come for us. You know, it's got to stop. There's too much invalidation of. You know, I've just re- finished my 18th book, and I have a whole little section in there where I talk about how we've got to stop invalidating people's stories and whatever. So we've got to make a change. We've, well, that's what you and I are doing. <laughs> yes, because it I starts do. with us. In it a mental does. health field, a lot of people don't even recognize. A lot of people really in society don't even understand the many differences in the mental health field between just psychologists, yeah. psychiatrists, family and marriage therapists, or marriage and a licensed counselor, licensed counselor, and licensed clinical social worker. There are so many different names for us and different fields that we work in, all under this mental health umbrella. And we're holding all of that information, just disseminating it mostly within the mental health field. Regularly, like the general public does not even know the difference. So we've got to do better with disseminating that information and making sure that people understand the differences and so that they're educated. But because we like to, again, it's that God complex. We like to sit and brag on ourselves. We're too busy kind of disseminating information amongst ourselves that we're not worried about getting it out to the people who it really matters. Exactly. And so that's been my hang up with my organization as a whole is that I can go to these conferences, but you're not getting getting that information to the people who look like me you and the people it. who I work with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We need to yeah, exactly. be getting that so information right. out broader and we're not doing a great job of that. Oh, you're so you right. I, I talk at a lot of these big mental health conferences and you're quite right. It's very do- predominantly white, which is not right. And it's not, they're not dealing with the issues. And I'm thinking it's kind of like, you know, you, you, you're getting more and more. What is the word when you keep giving, you're getting more knowledge for yourself, but you're getting so full that you have, but you, you're not actually giving it to you. This is, and there's also that almost that threat. Well, if I educate the public, they won't come to me. Of course not. Because your whole purpose of you getting educated is to give other people education. Zimbabwe, where I was born in Zimbabwe, they have the Friendship Bench Program, which was, has been shown to be one of the most effective mental health programs and I used a version of it in my therapy when I worked in South Africa I practiced there for 25 years and I just brought in a sort of brain science version of it but it's really was taking the community and it was it started with a granny one day sitting in a log on a log in one of the tribes and there's a whole thing oh all these 11 million people and there aren't enough psychiatrists thank goodness they're not there like don't let them come in because you don't need to drug more people but all what this woman did and the study was actually it it was a whole scientific study once they found out about it but bottom line is she was just this granny who people would come and talk to and her with their anxieties and their 
and there was no judgment. She just listened and would then give a pearl of wisdom push in the right direction. But the person talked it through and worked it out. She had no qualifications. And this was observed because that particular tribe had such an effective mental health status. And so then it like multiplied and they did a whole study and a whole thousands of people were reached and it was significant changes in mental health, significant to the point where Harvard picked up the study and that kind of thing. But of course, that hasn't been disseminated sufficiently across the world because there's no money in it. You know, there's it's like you can't patent it or you can't. But what people don't realize is that you need the professionals like yourself and like myself to be able to educate communities so that communities can have bench therapy. I call it bench therapy, the version that I was teaching. And it's, you know, it's, that's what we can do. And that's what the education can do. It can empower people to it doesn't remove people's jobs, you know, which is, I think, a lot of fear of, of, a, of a mental health specialist. It increases your influence and your, but you, it just changes. It looks different. And, you know, that's the new narrative that we really need to bring to mental health is we've got to help people to help themselves. And we've got to use the edu- people that have had taken the time like yourself to be educated, that have experience. How many grannies could you teach? And I'm talking about grannies. How many people in communities could you teach? You know, we've got churches. We've got a couple of churches where they put benches outside the church where it, it's a safe space and these kids that will come there it's in a very poor homeless community and the kids come and sit there and they know if they sit there they won't be judged it's become a place of healing for people to go and sit you know and that's what we can start trying to do listen we have to wrap this conversation up i've got to do another interview but this is let's pick up on this let's t- let's dive in and do it and talk sometime about how we can change communities how we can bring mental health and there's a lot of dialogue around it but there's more dialogue than action so let's talk about dialogue that actually leads to action so are you up for the challenge? I Dr. am up Ebony. for the challenge. I am up for the challenge. I love this conversation. You are a woman after my own brain. There you go. There you go. I'm so excited about this too. Well, thank you for your invaluable time and your fantastic pills of wisdom. And it's been such a great conversation. One of many. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Ebony. Have a fantastic weekend. We'll speak again soon. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then... I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.